Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Hail, Orphan, Wotan, Wodaraz. Hail to you, Grimnir. You have many names, many Hati. Bolvrker, Runatir, Drautir, Draugerdrotten. You have the countless ways of coming to us, having us know you. Oh, Holy One, our Father, you who leads the host to victory, you who grants power and wisdom, madness and inspiration, who shakes the tongue, who mounts the tree, who takes up the runes, who plums the depths of the roots of Yggdrasil, you who show us every way and yet keep some of your ways to yourself. Hail to you. Hail to you, challenging one. Hail to you, old bastard. Hail to you, father. Estuhail. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 14. My name is James Stowall, and you are joined by my good friend and co-host, Sarenth Odinson. How are you doing tonight, Sarenth? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a good day for me, too. I had a chance to... We had a break from this uh, polar vortex, and now we jumped right into spring. 100-degree temperature shift over a couple days, and so I was able to go outside today and hang out and smoke a pipe and had a good day. Yeah, it's been It's been wild. Uh, walking out of work after a 16-hour shift and all the the snows melted. It just it really took me aback. Like, oh, okay, this is actually over now. Huh. Yeah, it was so weird, <laughs> wasn't it? Like, And then even a few days ago, I, I went to go into work and, uh, you know, jumped in the car first thing in the morning, and it was only four degrees below zero, and it's amazing how warm that felt. Yeah, yeah. It's like your body's still trying to play catch-up with the weather. Yeah, Your exactly. Bodies. What is this? <laughs> the poor, the poor plant spirits. I don't think they know what the hell's going on right now. Oh man, do, do we do we let the sap go yet? Yeah, exactly. That's it. Well, here it is. Um, so, like, I've joined uh, Area Historical Society, and one of the big things they do in mid February is start collecting the maple sap for the syrup festival. I don't know how this affects all that. Like, this is my first year joining these guys doing that, and I, I've i got no idea how it's going to affect things. Oh, wow. That's, you got me. I haven't I haven't tapped before, but I'm curious to see what the results are going to be. Yeah, I, I won't be out there able to tap with them. Most of them are retired uh, men, but I'll be interested in hearing how the reports go. The part I'm looking forward to, um, I'm hoping, depending on what other committee duties I have, 
that I might be able to join them. This is the uh, Hanover Horton Area Historical Society here in, in Jackson, Michigan. And uh, they built their own sugar shack. And so there's uh, several of the men spend 24 hours or more around a fire keeping sap boiling. And I'm like, hmm, sounds right up my alley. Right. <laughs> A little bit of a sacred fire and some sacred sap and some magical syrup. It'll be great. <laughs> you seriously got to take time out to do that one of these days. That would be fantastic. <laughs> right. The enchanted syrup of Hanover, Michigan. Oh, man. What are we going to do with you, man? You're just trying to reach out to everything. I kind of like keep finding more new and interesting ways of, of, of uh, getting in trouble, don't I? You do. You're not even. You're not even getting thrown under the bus this time. You're like walking up to and going, "Hit me." <laughs> well, kind of, sort of. I mean, you know, um, it'll be interesting. I, I'm curious to see how it goes. So, um, I don't know. I, I, it's interesting because you know I, I do volunteer for things, and this is one that I, I kind of um, jumped into to help out a family member. And I'm kind of curious what comes of it because the historical society in this area is all based around. Uh, um, historical farm life right and so i'm curious how much they will let me interject um information about local native life if i might be able to get some native people in to talk about their history in the area um i'm curious about my friends that do some smithing and things like that like how far can we push the boundaries of of the historical society because it's an old railroad town and you know there used to be smiths and stuff in the area so why can't we look at that stuff a little bit more and draw in some some more uh, broader interest? Oh, that makes total sense. I think you should definitely go for that as as hard and as fast as they'll let you. <laughs> yeah, so it should be kind of fun. Who knows? They had a a really great presentation uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess it was. Um, talked about the. Uh, roots of the Underground Railroad here in Jackson County, which kind of fascinated me a little bit. Yeah, turns out um, Jackson, Michigan was an actual, um, what they called a a hub town or something like that, because some of the routes came up from... from south and ended up in Chicago, and from Chicago they wound down what eventually became... um, I-94 and and through Jackson towards Detroit and then other routes came up through like the Adrian area through Jackson and over to Detroit. Detroit was a major uh, destination because it was so easy to cross over into Canada, uh, especially during the winter because the whole lake would freeze over or the Detroit River would freeze over and you could just walk over. So it was kind of fascinating that Jackson was integral in that and so they were looking at some of the historical documents and uh the grave sites that are still here in jackson county and uh some of the descendants of of freed slaves that are still in jackson and it, i don't know it's pretty fascinating that's really powerful work because you're, you're working with the dead you're working with the land you're working with all these different old crafts that stretch back countless centuries because i mean modern blacksmithing when it took off for rail was using a lot of the same basic techniques as the iron shod nails for when settlers first came over. So it makes total sense. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then it was kind of interesting. It was one of the few times I'm really proud of the old town because, um, you know, Jackson, Jackson has this, um, reputation because we were the, the first big state prison 
and we are the longest time the largest walled prison in the United States. And, um, you know, but so it's always made some weird vibes around this town. But it was interesting that there was at least one incident where there's a lot of documentation and the uh, uh, of an escaped slave who came up to Jackson. And instead of moving on, he stayed and, and the community helped him set up a barber shop. Right. Well, word got down to his owner, quote unquote, in the southern states. And so he came up with an armed militia looking to reclaim his property. And the city of Jackson, a lot of the elders found out that he was coming. And so while he was at the courthouse arguing, they they got the barber and his whole family over to Canada. And so there was this big dispute. This guy was at the courthouse going, listen, I'm going to raise hell if you don't give me my property back. And essentially the city of Jackson said, you know, here's what we're going to do. We took up we, we took up a collection. We're going to give you some money and you're going to get the hell out of town. And so they basically sent him back home. They gave him some money so he he could feel like he had been vindicated in court. And then they went and they got the barber and his wife back from Canada and got him back in his barber shop and emancipated him. So it was it was amazing. And his descendants still live in Jackson. So that's fabulous. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, so you know, stories like that make you feel good about a place that you live. It's it's kind of you know, you, there's a lot of ugliness in the world right now. So it's good to hear stories about uh, people coming together and treating human beings like human beings, right? <laughs> it's a shocker, especially when you can take pride like that in your own hometown. That's uh, that's thank you, thank you for 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 doing the work of keeping that history alive. Well, you know, I, I hope. Got to find new and interesting ways to stir things up, you know. <laughs> it is you. It is me. That's right. Which is, you know, um, uh, here in a few moments, uh, folks, I, I have to let you know that my my uh, record of stirring the pot goes pretty well because we have a great interview tonight with Galina Kraskova. And as I was oh, listening yeah. to some of the ed- the edits, uh, we cover some really great information, especially really what I consider a really important topic of uh, lore versus unverified personal gnosis. We covered that pretty heavily, and it was a great talk. But yeah, I got things stirred up there too. We get Galena a little peppery in a few spots. So yes, uh, you, you know i I appreciate that you can ask those really tough questions in a way that really brings out a really awesome response. Oh, I appreciate that. I, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate what we're doing a lot on this show because, um, I think you and I do a really good job balancing each other out and keeping the energy flowing and you have a natural thoughtfulness that I, I don't always possess. So I, I appreciate that. Hey, I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so what else has been new with you? What else has been going on? Uh, I've been working a lot of overtime. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So I've been uh, chewing through a couple of uh, new books, a new audio book. Um, I finished reading uh, Back to Basics, which is a, covers a lot of old techniques, uh, covering everything from preserving food to tinsmithing, blacksmithing, um, just a wide array of stuff. So I'm, I, what I'll usually do is I'll reference the book, make notes of this is what I'll want to look up later on. Or this is the book they reference in here. And um, so my, my black notebook at work has been filling up quite a bit. Hey, um, I like that. You better watch it. I'll have you volunteering at the Historical Society for you. Know oh, it. man. <laughs> um, 
Let me think. The uh, I just picked up a book by Vindaloria Jr. Um, and the name escapes me right now. It's not God is Red. It's the other one that I was recommended. Mm, okay. Um, uh, I, I remember you telling me the title, and now I can't think of it. But uh... Yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'll eventually get it. But um, I got that and uh, the Beekeeper's Manual. And so I'm kind of, as my attention wanes, I switch over to the other one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Um, well, like you working a little bit here and there doing a few other things. Uh, and, uh, I, I admit I took some time today and kind of goofed around and, uh, my daughter and wife have really been watching this new series on Netflix, tidying up with Marie Kondo. Ooh. And I've been watching it too. An amazing show. I was really kind of fascinated with it so far. I think I've watched the first three or four episodes now. And, uh, she is, it's just about, you know, tidying up one's clutter and that sort of thing. But she has, um, well, there's, there's a couple things I like about it. First of all, uh, she has a very animistic approach, what I find really refreshing. So she comes in, it's not just about like you've seen with other shows where it's like throw the clutter out sort of thing. Um, one of the first things she does after meeting the people and coming into the house and surveying the situation is she sits down and quietly without talking out loud, um, makes a prayer. She has to introduce her energy to the house. She has to say hello to the house to get permission to let it know what they're doing there, which I find fantastic. Um, the other thing is a lot of her approaches are very animistic. So, um, she's helping people to clean up their closet and you go through and like even an article of clothing, if it doesn't bring joy to you, you should let it go. And she doesn't say get rid of it. She says, let it go. You have to think about what you want to carry into your future. And so it's a piece of clothing. You don't want it anymore. Well, obviously it had joy for you or function at one point in time. So you should thank it. Right. So she tells everybody to thank it before you set it in the pile to of things that you're letting go of, which is also very amazing. So I think what she's doing is sparking people to have a new sort of relationship with the things in their home, which and, and also a big emphasis on making sure things are organized so you're not buying things that you don't need, so you don't buy multiple items at the, uh, that you already have, one, that sort of thing. So it's a way of reducing, I think, consumerism. And then, uh, you know, the last component of what she talks about is sparking joy. Are you holding on to things that spark joy in your life, that, that give you good memories? That, that you want to? It's not a matter of getting rid of everything. It's getting... It's letting go of things that don't serve you anymore, which obviously, when you talk about my path, that kind of language appeals to me. So mm. it's it's a great show so far. I find it really fascinating. Yeah, something I found out, because uh, the, the, the first way that I found out about Marie Kondo and, and her style of organization, the KonMari method, was through the memes that were circulating, you know? Right, right. That's it. I saw those memes running around for about two weeks now. And then I came home the other day and uh, my daughter Raven was watching it. And so I'm like, she's like, this is really great. I said, okay, I'll check out a couple episodes. Yeah. And what I find really interesting is, as you're talking and as, as I've explored a little bit more into what she does, it turns out that she used to be a shrine maid. Oh, well, that makes complete sense on her approach then. I'll tell you, I've never seen, it's a joy watching her show because she is so full of joy and happiness and just her approach to everything is so refreshing. Um, like I said, I, it seems to me that the more people that are into this, the better, because I think it'll actually have the effect of kind of reducing some of the consumerism because it's changing the way people think about their relationships with things. 
yeah, the, the consistent refrain of does this bring you joy is that is such a powerful question. You know, when, when I pick up a piece of, of leather work that I haven't finished or worked on yet, you know, and I ask, does, does it bring me joy? Well, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And when it comes to like my book collection, there are some books I know I'm never going to touch again. So when, when the great uh, book combing happens, it's, it's going to be that, that question is a really powerful one. It's probably one I'm going to be starting to ask as we move forward. Oh yeah. There was an episode, I'm going to say third or fourth episode in where someone has to get rid of a bunch of books. They just have way too many books and they need to pare it down and they know it. So she has them take every book in their house and pile them up, right? Huge pile. And then she walks around knocking on the piles. She says that especially books that you have not looked at for a while, they've been in storage or on a shelf, you kind of need to wake them up before you can hold them and consider whether you should hold on to them or let them go. Oh. Isn't that oh, great? I, like that. I love that a lot. Oh, that is that is so beautiful. So, yeah, I mean, <sighs> I can see there was some... I, before <laughs> so I watched cool. the show, I know I saw some criticisms floating around online that, that people were concerned that this was coming from a place of privilege where where you're assuming people have enough things where they can let things go, that sort of thing. But um, the first few episodes, I really just don't feel that way. I feel like um, a lot of the conversation is about what you want to carry forward into your future. And and so it's a part of the mental process of not only finding a, a joy and fulfillment that comes from within, but connecting with these objects and, and taking the ones forward. There's obviously things... I've seen other shows like this where people are just you know, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. And she's not, she's very much, if, if you think you're going to have a use for it, if it's going to bring you joy, if it's something that is part of the you that's moving forward, yeah, you keep it, which, you know, I don't know. Like I said, once again, very refreshing approach. I thought. Yeah. It dovetails pretty nicely. I think into a lot of the, the places that we go in our interview with Galena. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I, 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 listen to this interview the whole thing again yesterday i was as i was doing some editing and man uh just a wealth of information that we cover in this show so i'm really excited for everybody to hear it awesome so are we ready to get to it i think so everybody uh have a little transition music here and then we'll get started with our interview with the fiery and powerful galena kraskova Uh, Galena, thank you for joining us tonight on Around Grandfather Fire. It's my pleasure to be here. So for those of us in our in our listening audience, or those in our listening audience that aren't as familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background and what you do. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, right. The $10 million <laughs> question right off the bat. Well, I've been heathen, which means I venerate the Norse gods particularly, Um, and polytheistic for about 30 years now. Um, I'm a priest within the Northern tradition and a spirit worker, which means I, I, I do, I I engage with gods and spirits on behalf of clients. Um, I guess that's the easiest way to describe that. I've, I've written upwards of 30 books and counting on various aspects of devotional work and, and, 
and the Northern tradition and prayer and things like that. I work in a blended tradition right now, so I also have a devotional relationship with Hermes, Dionysus, and Apollo, but my primary allegiance is Odin, Loki, and Segan. I mean, I'm, I'm owned by Odin. I'm, I'm, I'm been very devoted to him for the majority of my life. Um, in addition, I'm an academic. Uh, I have a master's in religious studies. I'm just finishing up a second master's now in medieval studies. And my focus is theology. I'm looking to do a PhD in, in theology. So I keep myself busy and out of trouble most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a bit on your plate. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> my thesis will be done sometime. <laughs> I, I told my advisor, I said, it exists like a platonic idea in the ether, and he's like, write it down. <laughs> <laughs> so in addition to being an academic uh, in study, you're also, if I remember right, you're also teaching too on top of all this. Yes, I, I've I've taught Latin and Greek and Roman literature for about ten years now as part of my graduate work. And this, I just finished teaching my first semester of Roman history, which was a new experience for me. And when the when the spring term starts up again, I'll be doing another another uh, semester of Roman history as well. And I enjoy it. I like my students. Excellent. Would you would you consider yourself like on the on the leading edge of of the northern tradition? Are you one of its originators? Because I know I always see your name associated with that term. I think I am one of the practitioners and theologians that has pushed the center far closer to acceptance of experiential practice and devotional work. Um, I can't say that I am one of its originators because really the modern Northern tradition, and, and that's an umbrella term really, uh, that encompasses multiple denominations. You know, we also use heathenry in the same way. It really started in the late 19th century. Um, and in the U S it, 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 it began in the late sixties, 1960s kind of as a a response to the counterculture rever cultural revolution and then evolved from there um so that was well before my time i'm afraid but i i know that i i think that my work has been responsible for opening it up to people who want to venerate the gods serve the gods and love the gods and engage in devotional work more than simply exploring it as a cultural practice or some connection to their ancestry. Not that that's a bad thing. Um, yes, I, I think that I am one of the movers and shakers and a very controversial one. Yeah, controversy. I, I would say that's a that's a fair one because sometimes I, you know, it's very easy to realize when you're pushing the limits of something or trying to move the center, it creates ripples and waves. And that does sometimes generate some controversy. Um, is that a position that you enjoy or is that just kind of a side effect of the work that you're called to do? It's a side effect of the work I'm called to do. Um, my job is to serve the gods and to teach other people to do the same. 
And sometimes that involves challenging the prevailing Weltanschauung in contemporary heathenry. Do I enjoy that? No. Um, is that really relevant to whether or not I'm going to do it? No. <laughs> um, I don't think when I started out doing my work that I realized how controversial it would be. I did avoid calling myself heathen for a very long time. I really feel like that's something that Odin pushed. I was like, no, don't make me. Hell no, I won't go. Um, because when I came into heathenry, one simply did not speak about one's personal experiences. There's the dreaded term UPG, which is unverified personal gnosis. You say this to a religious studies scholar and they'll laugh their asses off because all religion is unverified personal gnosis to someone <laughs> outside of the tradition. Um, and it was all about the lore, the lore. Well, I'm a medievalist. Let's talk about the lore. The lore is a body of medieval texts and pre-medieval texts, none of which was ever intended to be utilized in a religious manner. It's useful, absolutely, but it's not, a, it's not revealed scripture. And I think that coming into heathenry, we, American heathenry, I'm going to be very clear here, um, you, have a, you, you have a body of communities where the majority of practitioners are still largely converts from Protestantisms, often fundamentalist Protestantisms. And I think that there's an unacknowledged or unexamined desire to have everything neatly written down. They want scripture. So when I came in, your value in the community and your worth in the community and the authority in the community was very much invested in the lore. And I think, thankfully, that we've moved a bit away from that. I mean, we are fortunate in what we have in terms of written sources, but they're not scripture. They were never intended to be. And over the past 20, 30 years, I've seen a real shift toward embracing more of the experiential, toward discussing it. Because there was a time where you couldn't even discuss it in forums and, and in public. Like it, it was something that needed to be kept, that one needed to keep to oneself. And I'm glad to see that that has shifted. There's much more of a focus on devotional work. I was just writing about this uh, the other day. You know, I, there was this time when you come in, how do I be heathen? You would get a snappish response, read the lore. Well, you still are going to be told to read the lore. And it, because it is useful to understand our cosmology, but now you're just as likely to be told, well, maybe you should set up a shrine and start some type of devotional practice with the gods in whom you're interested. And maybe you should pour out some offerings and do X, Y, and Z. So it's, it, it's a little more balanced. We still have a ways to go, mind you, but I think it's a little more balanced. And, and I like to credit the work of, you know, my work, but also the work of, of colleagues like Saren. Um, like Raven Caldera, um, and people, and and even Hrafnar, Although, you know, God knows I have my issues with them. These people have been responsible for forcing that shift, and it's a necessary shift. I find that really interesting. That uh, because being around Sarenth for a while now and seeing his practice and how he works, it's very interesting to me that that 
it was so much more restricted to the academic and what was written lore at one point in time. One of the things I always like about the heathen approach and heathenry and northern tradition is, is there's a very large amount of, of practical worship, which is very reassuring. And, and I see Sarah do prayers over his meals. And sorry, I'm not talking about you like you're outside of the room here. Am I Sarah too much? This is, <laughs> no, but, you're good. But I see a lot of practical applications and, and, and things that are done. And so it's really striking to me that it was such a short time ago, relatively, where it was all restricted to just read the lore and let's talk about it and discuss it. And there wasn't a lot of actual things done. And I would say that it wasn't even an academic exploration of lore. It was more and still is in some quarters, um, the way that a Baptist Bible scholar might engage with lore. Anything that encouraged mysticism or devotional practice, and most of all, anything that encouraged ecstatic practices, like deity possession, like, like a deeply intense devotional engagement with a deity, was interpreted out. The attitude was oh, well, the gods don't want anything to do with us. That's for the ancestors. And yet the same people will say, well, we are kin of the gods. They are our ancestors. But I guess that respect for ancestors only goes so far in some quarters. You know, gods are much safer and much more comfortable when they're restricted to the pages of a book. Well, that is true, definitely. At least there's a lot of people that feel that way. Well, absolutely. And I think that... That, you know, with so many people coming from Protestantism and also working in a post-industrial modern society that pretty much pathologizes the mystical, um, there, there are issues. And plus, we're still a, largely a religion of converts, and there's a psychology that goes with that as well. I, I've often talked or I've often written about what I like to term the diaspora effect. I think that with American heathenry, one from our inception as a country, there has been a threat of fundamentalism in the way that we deal with religion. And I mean, think about the Puritans. And I also think with the diaspora effect, there's some underlying anxieties in, Amer in many uh, facets of American heathenry because you're practicing an ancestral religion, an indigenous religion, but you're doing so outside of the cultures that birthed it and also far, far removed from the land in which it initially evolved. And I, re I really think that there's, there's some insecurity there. It's getting better. I mean, I, 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 I have seen, I was actually really surprised because as I said, I was writing an academic article about this just the other day. I finished it Christmas Day. So I was like, wow, things have changed. Things have gotten better over the past 30 years. But we still have a way to go, a ways to go. Yeah, one of the things that I, I even in the, oh my gosh, um, almost 15 years that I've been a heathen. Uh, we are old, older than dirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least 11 years for me anyway. Um, uh, the time that I've been heathen, I've seen a shift away from pure academia as the, like the bog standard to devotion being mixed in with that because we're still very much the religion of books and homework <laughs> but that homework is practical i mean I, I don't think that's a bad thing when it's balanced mm -hmm. by devotional work and active devotional engagement yeah i think that 
that's been a, a real sea change even in the past 10 years has been going from uh, being really on the nose. you got to know your sources. you got to read these certain books by these certain authors too. Well, there's a spread of authors, read different translations, um, and then form your own opinions, form your own understandings, and then take that and apply it. Like, I think that really what we've been seeing a renaissance in humanry around has been the application mm-hmm. more so than the research. I would agree because- with that. I, 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 and like, as I said, they're, they're reading the lore will give you an insight into our cosmology, but one must remember that certainly with the poetic edits and the sagas, they were written down 200 years after conversion by a Christian poet. They were not written to preserve heathenry. They were written to help poets understand some of the older kennings and wordplay. So they, they have to be, be understood as, as, as just a tiny, tiny bit of what once must have been an incredibly complex oral tradition. It's useful, but it's a map, and the map isn't the territory. And I think that we're finally at a point where I, w- I would say more and more people coming into heathenry, certainly, that there's more understanding of that. There's more understanding that, you know, a tradition is more than simply being able to recite passages of lore. You know, it's actual engagement with the sacred and engagement with the holy. And what does that mean? And how do we do that? And how do we maintain right relationship? And why do why is this so important? I mean, I think that there are contracts, that there is a generation of our ancestors that abandoned these contracts with our gods, with our ancestors and with the land. And we are in the privileged position of being able to pick those back up and restore them. And it's incredibly difficult, but incredibly exciting, too. You know, we can do this thing for our holy powers. We can do this thing for our ancestors. We can restore. And that's messy business. What what I find interesting about all our traditions, but what I can really observe well in northern tradition and heathenry is that um, after enough things start uh, coming together, where you end up with new lore. Like, uh, for example, there's there's things that you and Sarenth and and Raven Caldera and then other practitioners that are far flung places across the United States, they and even the world, everybody starts going, oh yeah. That is probably something of Odin's. That is something that I see common through all our practice. All the unverified personal gnosis experiences start to come together in new lore, which I find is very fascinating. And then it becomes what um, a couple of my colleagues have called, let me see if I'll get this right, peer-corroborated personal gnosis. Mm. Basically, what this, all this is saying is that the gods have continued to engage with their devotees. Theology happens whether we want it to or not. Devotion happens whether we want it to or not. And these things change the evolution of a tradition. And they drive that evolution, sometimes in very unexpected ways. Well, yeah, picking picking up um, the threads of, of various pieces of lore is... 
a radical act in and of itself because you're um, something that came up a lot when when you and I were talking a while ago was how every time you you tell one of the myths when you tell one of the stories it becomes a it it really is a living thing and it changes each time you tell it oh yeah and if you do if you tell it correctly if you are in the right head and heart space you are creating you are creating space where the gods about whom you are just talking can touch that devotee, can touch the listener. You're creating a conduit for communication. You know, these, the, these, these sacred stories that we have, however mediated they may be by having been recorded in God knows what else by a Christian poet and politician, by having been written down a thousand years ago, by being retold, they're still they still contain a kernel of something sacred and they can be used as powerful, powerful windows into an exploration of our cosmology. And so much of what we do as devotees is to reenact key moments in our cosmology. Every time we pray, we are realigning ourselves with the order that the gods have created. And by doing so, we are co-creating almost. We are we are participating in that moment of creation again and again and again and again. I mean, it's very important, I think, to tell those stories, but it's also important to understand that there are going to be new stories too. Can we dig into that a little bit? Um... Or what the what the new stories we're, we're coming forward with are looking like um whether it's from your own experience or from your from talking with colleagues that kind of thing in some cases it's okay a couple of us many many years ago had peer corroborated personal gnosis <laughs> <laughs> the mouthful right it is that- that our goddess Segan was the adopted daughter of the Vanic god Njord. This didn't just come up with one person. Multiple people started having that sense or being told directly through their experience with the gods. And then we delved into that, and suddenly there's a whole new way of connecting with Njord. There's a whole new way of connecting with Frey and Freya, and of course of connecting with Segan. And it just spirals out from there. What does you know? What what does that mean? What does that? Pardon me. What does that tell us about Njord? What do, the relationship to Sia and to see one of our deities as a child? Not that the deity needs to present that way. Or will always present that way, you know. Our gods are manifold, but and many faceted. But to get that glimpse, that enables us not just to explore Segan and her story devotionally, but also to explore Njord and to explore Freya and 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 different deities. I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating about our gods is that they're they're so tribal you know eventually if if you venerate one of the norse gods you're going to get introduced to their family and and it it, it 
expands and grows and suddenly you're not just going to be venerating Odin. It's like, here's my son, Thor. Here's, here's why, why, why don't you, you'll get a push. Well, let's look at Frigga or let's look at, at Heimdall or Loki or, you know, X, Y, and Z, no disrespect intended, you know, by not naming these deities. It, it's such a personal thing. And it's almost like lighting a match to a bit of tinder all of a sudden there's this explosion and you don't know where it's going to end. And I think that's wonderful. I think that's what has to happen. One of the things that's made me really, really happy over the past 20 years is that I've seen deities that 30, 40 years ago weren't even mentioned, not mentioned because they only have like one line in our lore. Like take one of our healing deities, uh, air, the spell, the E I R. She is called by Snorri the best of physicians. And that's about all we know. She's mentioned maybe three times in one line, throwaway lines. Well, 30 years ago, I don't think anybody venerated her. Or, But now, because people are engaging in active devotional practice, they're finding their way to gods like Er, or like Odin's son, Holder, uh, the blind god, or... Or are our sea deities like Ron and Iger and their nine daughters, or or Andvari, the Dwarger craftsmen, and we're seeing powerful cultists happening. Cultists happening with deities that have almost no mentions in lore. So the only way that you can explore the cultists is to rely on your spiritual discernment and your devotional practices. And it happens via the embodied practice of making offerings and praying and doing all of this work. You have maybe a snippet of a story, but then it just opens up through the, the through these embodied practices and, and something marvelous occurs. We have cultists happening, you know, in case that would have been unthinkable 30, 40 years ago. Are, are people actively writing new stories or sharing new stories or are the stories of some of these, uh, these gods and goddesses, are they more the stories of people's interaction with them? So like if there's a, if there is a, a, a peer perception of how two gods are interacting, does someone take the time to actually write those stories or is it just the story of, of that revelation? A little bit of both. Uh, some of us are taking the time to write them, but I want to caution against putting so much weight on the written word. I love my books, God knows, but a tradition cannot be learned through books. And I think that in the modern world, we privilege the written word. Like I had a colleague of mine, he's, he's doing his PhD in theology and systematics, and we were having a discussion over religion, and he, he really, it puzzled him how a religion could exist and grow and thrive without a sacred text. And I said, well, ours doesn't have it. And it grows and thrives through intergenerational transmission and through ritual and through these devotional practices and through cultists. And I think that we really need to guard against privileging the written word because once you write something down it ceases to be fluid once it's written down it's very difficult to recapture the synergy that occurs 
in the midst of that experience. Oh, sure. So, I, mean, I can definitely understand that. I'm the, the curiosity on my part wasn't more about uh, privileging the written word, but it was more about so much of, like you said, understanding cosmology. Like when I'm first trying to understand a relationship, a lot of times I refer to those stories because that gives me a place to begin. It gives me visualizations to grow from. It gives me a place to, to, to uh, a field to plant the seed into. And I was wondering if, as more is discovered about some of these gods, that if the stories are actually being passed around, because that gives other people that fertile ground as well. That's kind of where I was going with that. Yes, they are. Um, and often in more, I will use this term, more fundamentalist branches of heathenry, that's met with derision. But yes, they are being passed around, and it has been fruitful for devotees. Um, where did I want to go with that? I just lost. I just lost. Lost the. Uh, so, oh, if I, could, I was going to say, uh, uh, Sarenth, just give give me a second here. I would not direct a newcomer to the lore. Eventually, I would. But the first thing I would tell them is to set up a shrine and start making offerings and praying. It would be a while before I actually gave them the Lord because it's, I want to guard, one of the things that Loki Noden taught me very early on was the importance of going to our gods or any deity without any preconceptions. Because without preconceptions, and um, if Lord is a preconception, if this is, this is how Odin is, well, what if he doesn't want to come to you that way? You know, I mean, it 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 create we block our experience of the gods by the preconceptions that with which we go to them. So I actually wouldn't tell someone to go to the lore. Oh, Not interesting. Eventually, I'd be like, all right, now we got to sit down and discuss our creation story, and now we have to learn these stories. But that would not be my first advice to a student so out of curiosity's sake then if if you don't start anyone with uh if, if you're trying to avoid preconceptions then at what point in time or how do you know who is showing up or who they are what they say they are sort of thing there are well, I mean, how do I know I'm talking to you and not Sarenth? When the god is present, or de when any deity is present, their presence feels unlike any other. And this is where we get into the realm of a spiritual discernment. You know, before I, when I'm engaging with a new uh, presence, I'm first going to pray to my ancestors. And I'm going to pray to a god that I have a relationship with and ask for clarity and protection and discernment and I don't automatically trust a new presence and certainly with with those who come to me as students this is where your elders and your teachers come into play I'm keeping an eye on what's going on there mm. you know um, and we're also doing group devotionals group rituals group prayer they're not just cast adrift on their own. I want to make sure that they're not listening to, you know, that the, pre the presence that they're engaging with is actually a deity. 
I want to make sure that it's not something evil. I want to make sure that it's not a sock puppet in their head. You know, I want to make sure it's not some bottom feeding spirit that's trying to mimic a deity. And some of that comes from experience. It comes from myself having so many years of work with these gods and I observe and I pray and I have my students praying. And at the same time that they're engaging in devotional work with the deities, I'm having them do ancestor work as well and asking their ancestors to be present and asking, and asking their ancestors to protect them. And I myself am doing that. And I'm observing the, their interactions in ritual space or in devotional space. So they're, they're not, they're not just sent out into the devotional wilderness. And well, like, that makes sense. Yeah. It's not uh, the value of a value of a lineage tradition and teachers there. Right. And I think that there's a balance there. I mean, we have our written sources, we have devotional work, we have work within our, our traditions community we also have elders and teachers, and all of these things work together. I mean, one of the biggest challenges facing uh, the heathen communities, and I use that in a plural because there are multiple denominations, and this, is, this holds true for any polytheism, except perhaps the unbroken lineage of Hinduism, is that we don't have yet intergenerational transmission. And we don't have, we're not growing up in small societies where everything is reinforced, Everyone it has this, this awareness, this worldview. Instead, we're growing up in a society that's incredibly hostile to devotional work in general. You know, polytheism perhaps in particular. And we're not having the benefit of intergenerational transmission. I mean, we still have people arguing over whether or not they should raise their children polytheist. I'm like, if you're not, you're part of the problem and get the hell out. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, I'm kind of piggybacking off of that. Uh, my own <clears throat> raising of our children, um, our son, we didn't really have him hit the books until about the last year or so uh, because it wasn't relevant. Uh, I should be able to teach him out of my own experiences and store of knowledge the basics of how to do the religion proper. Mm -hmm. Um and so to me, it's, it, that makes a lot of sense because, well, you can, and I'll, I'll use my own Catholic background as, a, as an example of this. Um, you know, you can ask the, the, the priest all kinds of questions at the end of mass, but you're all, you're, you've already gone through the experience of mass itself. Well, in, in a polytheist household, you know, you're doing the daily work of devotional work and offerings and all that. So, yeah, ideally. <laughs> um, and so for, for us, a large part of raising our children in the traditions has been, um, you know, even with our, our, our baby, is she is present when we're doing prayer, night prayers, meal prayers, everything. And even at her age, she knows when it's time to be quiet because we're all huddled together around the dinner table, our section of the dinner table, and we're praying together. And we've linked hands and she gets it. So even, even to a young baby, you know, you can kind of start to get the ball rolling without them really understanding everything that's going on because that's it's not necessary at that age. 
and later you tell the stories and there is a time to engage with the written sources for our cosmology, but that's not where the real work is. So I, I guess the reason I was asking and the one I'm trying to parse out, because I'm, I'm trying to come at it from an angle that, that people that are listening to this show, not all of them are going to have an opportunity to have a teacher or to have a lineage tradition. And certainly you're not necessarily going to be coming from a household where they were raised as polytheists. Um, and you said, how do you know that you're actually talking to me right now? You, you don't, but you at least have my Skype handle and a picture. So the, the equivalent I'm wondering is if people are approaching it on their own, they, they don't have the benefit of a lot of community support or a teacher or something, doesn't some of that lore at least give them the, the, the picture and what the offerings that might be and, and how they can actually get started and, and kind of trust the have any sort of feedback on, on what they're seeing or feeling if they can't compare it to the lore. It can, but it can also be a block. And it's, again, that's, that's a tightrope. Um, that's a real tightrope. I, I, it's a tightrope because we put so much authority unconsciously just as a culture. We privilege the written word so much and particularly if someone is coming from um, a religion that also has a heavy emphasis on scripture. So it can be helpful, but I think that we need to be aware, if so someone in that situation needs to be aware that, okay, this is a map. It's not a complete map, you know, but it's one map. It's one doorway. So... If you can go into it understanding that and understanding that it's heavily mediated. Sure. Yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm just trying to, um, I would actually make the argument that a large body of our culture doesn't give any weight to the written word, that we're a much more visual and an image-oriented society. So I guess in my mind, if I've got people that are trying to approach it using the lore as a guide, even if it might be a little restraining, it might be better than approaching it with uh, Marvel movies as your guide. Absolutely. And I would agree that we're a visual society until we start thinking about religion. Because mm -hmm. the majority of people are still coming from one of the big three Abrahamic faiths. Well, that's a good point. Somehow when you start getting into the realm of religion, you'll see a lot of people, one of their definitions of religion, inaccurate, I might add, is that it has a written text. Well, not necessarily. And it's important to understand going in and to constantly remind yourself that whatever we call the Lord does, is not scripture. It does not serve in this. We, have, we do not have or need something that serves that role. And I think that the religions that we were raised in, and even if you weren't raised in a particular religion in the States, our culture is still deeply, in, our secularism is still deeply colored by Protestant Christianity. So our expectations of what a religion is and how it's going to function, whether we realize it or not, are deeply influenced by the by that those expectations. 
So it's important to keep these things in mind. And I think that they're too little explored um, with our converts. It's getting better, you know, and ideally, you know, ideally you have someone who can guide you and ideally you're doing the devotional work at the same time that you're reading the lore. I mean, that devotional piece has to be there. Otherwise you might as well just be LARPing. This is true. <laughs> Do you find that it's different with uh, people that you interact with that are, are, are European uh, uh, descent that are that are still living in Europe? Is that a big, huge difference? Um, the European communities have different ideological fault lines, theological fault lines that come up, and I haven't done enough work with them on the ground to to be comfortable uh, making any comparisons or assertions. Um, that's why when in a lot of my written work, particularly my academic work, I'll always specify this is the American heathen communities that I'm talking about. Um, there are different issues facing the European communities and their development. Like, like here, I, I said in America, um, heathenry, specifically Alcatru, developed as a response to the countercultural revolution of the 60s. Well, that's not the case, say, in Iceland or in Germany or in Russia or, or with Hellenismos in Greece. And there are different challenges facing those communities. So I don't, I don't really feel comfortable speculating. Um, the challenges are too different. You don't see the fundamentalism that you see in America, uh, that you uh, often see in American religion. That I will say. That's a... We're number one. In <laughs> you know, I, the United States in particular, I've always said that we we just love our extremes. And no matter what it is, if we can take it to the most extreme degree we possibly can, we're not pleased until we get there. Amen. <laughs> so in exploring... Um, not just the gods, but I think that one of the things that uh, has really piqued my my interest in the last couple of years, especially, um, has been the development of local cultists, especially to spirits of place. Um, you know, I'm going to probably butcher the Latin. I think it's called genus loci. Yeah, genus <laughs> loci. Spirit that. of place. That's all it means. <laughs> Spirit of a place. <laughs> Um, I think that that's an important, that's like the third piece in the puzzle. You have your gods, you have your ancestors, and you have your local vetir, which is an Icelandic word that means spirits. Um, the old the Anglo-Saxon is wit, um, W-I-G-H-T, and it just means spirit. Regional cultus is a thing, and, it, and I think that in, in pre-Christian polytheisms, you would see tremendous differences regionally the gods take that into account that's that's part of the lens through which they will communicate with us so i think it's really important to bring that back and i'm seeing a much greater uh focus on on honoring the land and honoring the gods in tandem with those places and i think that's wonderful you know my work tends to not be quite so land focused. I I I, I uh, tend to focus outside. In addition to the gods, my work tends to be very ancestor focused. But 
I have enough colleagues working in my tradition and in my immediate household that do have that land piece that, that we kind of balance each other out. So it's nice that, 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 that we, we keep each other honest. Yeah, that's something that uh, I notice uh, is a kind of a synergy between uh, myself and, and Nick, for instance, mm-hmm. who a lot of his practice is very uh, animist and very admired in the, the interrelationship with, with local spirits and his um, listening to him talk about his relationship with, it, with the land vateer via hunting is inspiring to me mm-hmm. um and so it, the way he ties that into his work with scoffy yeah and and not treating them as separate and not treating any of this as like it's cordoned off and it's messy i, I think that's the the joy of polytheism is that when you get into the nitty-gritty and you you're, you're doing the work Sometimes it can get very messy. Like, where does this land? We we talked about here on the show with regard to barrow mounds in uh, Denmark. You know, where where do the the vatir of the land begin? Where does the the dead that reside in the barrow end? Is there a point where they bleed into each other? Do they, you know? And so there's this really fun kind of messy interaction at times when you get to talking about the gods and ancestors and the vates are all occupying similar spaces in your, in your communities or in your religious practices. There's a lovely Estonian proverb that says the work will teach you how to do it. And I think that that's, that's very, very true. And it is incredibly messy, but in practice, I think that, every devotee figures out has to has to hash that out for themselves because so many of us are called differently our work is different like i work with a wonderful spirit worker uh my my friend tatiana and her work is is with freya and deals quite a bit with the land my work is with odin and deals quite a bit with the dead and we can share a lot of our work but there are there are lines that we can't cross. Like I can happily go and, and, and picnic all night in a cemetery talking to the dead and talking to Odin and making offerings and doing ritual. That would be polluting to her. That would bring me asthma. Whereas I feel the same way about a lot of the land work that she does. It is not the way I'm wired. So we work together and there's balance. it's something that every devotee has to figure out for themselves. What do your gods want of you? Because you're not Sarenth, you're not Galena, you're not Jim, you're not this person or that person. What do they want of you? What are you called to do? And this isn't just for those specialists. It's for the laity as well. You know, how are you called to be in the world? And it's terribly messy, but if you have good devotional relationships eventually, you know, it sorts itself out, which doesn't mean that there isn't going to be conflicts, that there won't be conflict occasionally between obligations and desires and, and, oh God, please don't make me do that. But, you know, it does work itself out in practice. So something I've been wondering about, and this is one that I don't know, I, that I've ever heard before, but I am curious about because I think it relates uh, to how other people would 
begin to approach their work. So if I could, Galena, help me understand, cast your mind back and help me, uh, show me, tell me a little bit about what it was like for you when you were getting started. Like, where did your spiritual path begin? What was your background like? What was that first big revelation that kind of pushed you the direction of, of heathenry or Northern work? Um, I grew up very devout Catholic. Um, And I was very devout. And I realized when I was around 12 that as much as these gods and spirits exist, they weren't mine. Mm -hmm. So I left Catholicism. It was a big battle with my family. I I didn't want to be confirmed. And I talked to the priest because, of course, my parents pulled the priest in. And he agreed with me. I'm like, look, I, I don't, this is a sacrament. Confirmation occurs around 12. And it's confirming your, your membership in this faith. And it's a major sacrament. I said, I can't in good conscience receive this. I simply don't believe. It's not so much that I didn't believe. I knew that these gods and spirits existed, but they weren't mine. And eventually I, about 18, and the priest agreed with me, which of course, you know, so. <laughs> that must have pleased your family. That shocked them. But around 18, I had an experience with the goddess Sekhmet, and I still venerate her. Um, and I was, in, I was initially ordained to her, and I didn't know anybody else honored her. And she kind of put me through boot camp. And it was she who turned me over to the Norse gods. And my first devotional relationship amongst the Norse was actually with Loki. And it was Loki who prepared me for Odin. And it was Odin who claimed me. And my relationship was God's-driven. I I hear them. I engage with them. It wasn't people-driven. I think that that's another thing. It makes a difference whether you come to the religion because you want a sense of community or you're interested in exploring your heritage and this is part of it or X, Y, and Z or if you come because you were called by a deity. I'm coming for the gods. It does make a difference in how you respond in ritual and devotion. And for me, it was all about serving Odin. And that happened fairly quickly, and he began training me and kind of raising me up and and turning me into the type of spirit worker and priest and human being that was serviceable and useful to him. Um, so for me, it was, it was always all about Odin. Um, and I don't know what else to say other, <laughs> other than that. And, and then, you know, I ran my own kindred for a while, and, and I worked in theodism in a while, not something I necessarily recommend. And, um, <laughs> you know, it just went from there. I mean... So segment put you through boot camp. I'm kind of curious. What what does that mean to you? Like, what? How would you express that to other people? What was that process like? She destroyed my life, and then raised me back up. She took my friends, my home, my career. Um, she broke down all the false masks that I had learned to wear, and showed me who I was, and taught me to walk with integrity and built me back up. 
and I love her dearly, she taught me what it meant to live in right relationship with the holy powers. And then she's like, she's my mother in every way possible. Sekhmet is my mother, but I'm, you leave the nest at some time, at some point. So she helped me deal with, like it's important to be running to something, not away from something. Mm-hmm. And segment forced me to deal with any unresolved issues that I had. In addition to everything I just said, she forced me to deal with any unresolved issues I might have had about my birth religion, which was great because you don't run away from something. Thank you for sharing all that, because to me, uh, a lot of people don't really understand what the process can look like on a practical level sometimes. It, <laughs> it sucks, yes. It can really be awful, awful, terrible things. But then it doesn't. It's totally, totally worth it. You know, and and part of it was to teach me to trust them, too. Like, I know a lot of my experience with Loki, like Loki really sustained me every good thing I've had in my life in some way, shape, or form, came through Loki's hands, um, including my relationship with Odin, including my um, being given an adopted mother. I mean, everything in my life that was good came in some way through Loki's hands. So part of what he did was he taught me to trust the gods and to understand that they will engage with you and they want the best for you. And because we live in a world that is so terribly out of balance, sometimes the best getting to that point can hurt. You know, there's the, there's the, the, the almost cliche metaphor that healing hurts. I mean, I think about lancing an abscess. Well, first you have to lance it and clean it out and that's unpleasant. Um, but then healing can happen and then you be healthy. And I sometimes, I I often think about the process of being taken up by a deity in very similar fashion. First, they have to get us, first they have to teach us integrity um, and to exist with integrity, with ourselves, with them, with our ancestors, with the people around us. And then we can get down to, to to the work of, whatever it is they want us to do. But first there's that stripping down of all the bullshit. I think you raise a really good point. And I, again, thank you for, for sharing everything you have with us. Uh, I think that that running to not running from has, has a pretty big throughput in my, my own devotional and my own religious life as well. Um, when Loki came into your life, what, because, I mean, Loki is a controversial figure no matter where you go in heathenry. Only to in people tradition. so far up their asses they can't see daylight. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who are a little confused, what, what uh, I'm, gonna try, I'm trying to ask this delicately, what drew you to run to Loki? I, nothing drew me to run to Loki. Loki came to me. Okay. Uh, that's the thing. Like, like, no, I didn't seek out any of these gods. Um, they opened me up to them, and then, then I sought them out once the initial contact had been made. But um, no, I, I didn't have any. That's 
it's like it, it, they started it. I didn't <laughs> say, oh, I'm going to honor Loki now. No, I was actually fairly resistant uh, with with Norse things because I didn't like the community over much at the time. I can understand that. <laughs> um, my my own journey to working with Odin started in a very similar fashion. I didn't care much for the community that was around him. Uh, the heathens I knew at the time were very blood and soil and very, uh, 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 well, just to put it bluntly, racist. And it kind of turned me off to the community and went, oh, well, you know, I don't know anybody that works with these gods. I know he's knocking on my door, but no, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, that. I mean, I haven't had the experience with racism in the community. Um, I think that there's a regional component to that. And I live on the East Coast in a major, near a major city. <sighs> the coast, the coastal areas, I think you're less likely to see that. Hmm. That makes sense. So can you, for especially since a lot of this, uh, a lot of our talk has been geared toward people who are, are often isolated. And, uh, so say a deity comes knocking and you know it's definitely a deity and not a bottom feeder. Or maybe we can talk about how you discern that uh, from, a, from as fresh perspective as we can. How do I discern that? I will go to divination because there's, for me, because there is something about the ordered space of the mat, of the diviner's mat, that strips away disguise. I will take it to divination or I will call on a deity that I know that I have had the relationship with and ask mm -hmm. for clarity. Often now, um, it'll actually be a, de the de the, a deity that I venerate will be present when new contact occurs, which is, is, makes it a lot easier. But I will go to divination. I think the polytheisms are religions of diviners for a reason. And we have a way of determining what our gods want and whether we're doing it and sorting shit out. And it, if I'm having contact with a new spirit, um, and for some reason through my own prayer and, and work with ancestors and gods, I can't, I can't tell. And even if I can, I will go to divination to find out what's going on. And I will go to divination through a deity that I already have, have a relationship with. And my divination process involves a lot of protocol to set up the space. So, um, I know for for your practice, you've been doing, like you said, you've been doing this about thirty years. For somebody who's fresh to it and doesn't have a lot of experience with with divination, is there are there methods that you recommend to people who are kind of fresh? Um, say they're they're just getting into heathenry, and is there some kind of divination method they should go to? Whether it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm gonna say three things. I'm like seek out a good diviner if you can. Don't let the community put you off venerating a deity or your ancestors, because I have found that the communities can be a real block to developing a good devotional relationship. Just don't make their bullshit your own. And don't get distracted by the experience. 
Um, it's easy to start fetishizing the way it feels when you're in the presence of a god or a spirit. Keep up with the devotion, direct your prayers to the deities, and don't let anything else distract you, if that makes sense. And be patient. Keep, it's important to have a strong prayer practice. My household, we pray every night together. Um, it helps. Build a good practice. And within that practice, build a good protocol. I will begin with prayers to cleanse and purify the space and drive out any unhelpful spirits. Um, don't deviate from your protocols. Trust your protocols. And especially when you're getting pushed by a spirit to deviate, like, oh, you don't have to do all that tonight. Well, no, do it. Have a set prayer and devotional protocol. And don't get distracted as wonderful as it is when a deity shows up and you are in that presence. Don't get distracted by it. And pray for clarity. Pray and direct those prayers to the gods that you love. And trust them. And pray that if the spirit with whom you are currently considering engagement is not what it says, pray to the gods that that will be revealed. Build that relationship. The relationship should not be determined by what you feel in a particular situation. I don't feel like doing my devotion today. Well, I'm going to do it anyway because it really doesn't matter what I feel. Feelings are transient. And feelings can be deceived. But if you are training yourself in the habit of doing the right thing consistently, it's much easier to develop discernment. I would say the uh, there's also a flip side to that, uh, what you just mentioned, that uh, kind of goes along with the, the lust of result. Um, yeah, it's not letting yourself get distracted if you don't get anything out of an interaction, even over a long period of time. The ability to sense and engage with them will develop. Um, it's your 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 devotional work shouldn't be predicated on that. And that's hard because people coming into it will see people like you and I. They'll see me. They'll see you. They'll see people who have that capacity they haven't seen the 30 years that it took to develop it and they want that too and they think that that's what what devotion is about and if you're not getting that constant feedback that you're doing something wrong i would say no no you know it, don't judge your devotional work and your religious life by that feedback 
how we experience the gods is based on any number of things. Like I have a certain a genetic capacity to to experience them in this way, you in another way. And our experiences have also crafted us to be able to engage in certain fashion. If you're not able to hear them or sense them right away, don't be discouraged. It is a particular grace to commit to devotional practice when you do not yet have the capacity for, for that feedback. And some people may never be able to experience it in that way. And that's fine. It doesn't mean that they're not there. But I, I, I think that people coming in, particularly laity coming in, they might get unhelpful expectations that if they're praying or if they're doing shrine work or, or making offerings, that it's going to be this, this, this overwhelming sense of presence. And there might be. But there might not be. And if there isn't, it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It's important that we not do these things for that response. My mother had, my adopted mom had a prayer that if I love you and honor you solely in order to feel loved, let me feel nothing. You know, I want to do this for the right reason, not for the feedback, not, not for the pat on the head. But I think because so many of us who are active in the community, and certainly with theologians and specialists, we quite naturally, and rightly, I think, talk about our experiences. I think that that's necessary. That newcomers may think that if they're not having that, that they're doing something wrong. And that's not the case at all. And I've also had people say to me, well, you know, sometimes I doubt, so that makes me a bad polytheist. I'm like, no, it makes you human. You know, my adopted mm -hmm. mom, who taught me more about devotion than I ever have any business knowing, used to say, you know, I have moments of doubt. And in those moments, I say, whether you exist or don't exist, I love you. My doubt makes no difference. I'll get over myself eventually. The important thing is to be consistent, you know, and it's hard. And, you know, it's, it's really hard because a lot of people come, because we're still a religion of converts, I think a lot of people come into our traditions broken, wounded. And, you know, it's, it's rough. So if I could, this is, this is, uh, Jim's time to stir the pot. I've been meaning to ask you both about this. I know you've both written about it, but especially since <laughs> the name Loki was brought up a few times, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about the, the column that was in the Wild Hunt about Loki in the White House, because that, I think that was really... Most, oh, that was the most disrespectful, impious piece of bullshit I have ever read. And it made me sick to read it, and the author should be ashamed of himself. I, I, I was really floored by it. I couldn't believe some of the stuff he was saying and some of the connections he was trying to make. They were just ridiculous. They were absolutely absurd, and he should be ashamed of himself. It is... 
Loki is one of the holy powers. And for all that these people talk about their precious lore, they conveniently ignore the many places in the lore where he is noted as a god. Yeah, the fact that he is referred to not not just, oh, oh he's a Jotun. No, they specifically refer to him as a seer. They specifically refer to him as among the company of the Council of the Gods. Consistently. Not for us to judge our gods, and it is not for us to put our own bullshit ahead of the gods. And I think that, and, and shame on Wild Hunt for publishing that piece of horseshit. The, the part that was really killing me, I, I, I just couldn't understand. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, even if you're a lore purist, right? There's the statement in there that that the uh, that that um, oh boy how do I'm losing my train of thought here. So Loki's children were all all cast out or whatever, and so there's this thought that he was really evil and there was no avoiding it and there was no avoiding what his children were going to do. But even in the way the lore is written, it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy. The like if the gods life. hadn't cast these children out, maybe that wouldn't have happened at all. It wasn't a self-fulfilling prophecy. One of those children is the goddess of the dead who cares for our ancestors. Exactly. Or is written, was written by a Christian. And we have too many people who, who can't get over their Protestant upbringings wanting to give heathenry a Satan. They just have to have this dynamic. Loki stirs the pot. The scholar Dumaisil referred to him as the unquiet thought. And we need that. He is essential to our cosmology. There is one skaldic reference that equates him with the god Lothar, who was one of the three creator gods. You know, and 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 unfortunately, there amongst old guard heathen, there is a remarkable lack of piety and respect and reverence. I always uh, my my feeling, one of my personal stories that I tell to myself that I've I've even written down in a few places is that. Uh, I wrote a story once about the relationship between Loki and Odin and Loki was trying to explain to a mortal the, the love that he has for Odin is so huge that it almost overcomes the fact that he hates Odin because Odin makes him do all the things that Odin doesn't want to do himself. And I always feel like that's the relationship that they have. Like they, they are so important to each other as agents of change that I don't see how you can respect one side and disrespect the other. And it's not just change. It's maintenance of the divine order, but not a static order, an order that is constantly a creative order. Mm. That's a great point. And, and it just, people like the author of that piece make me sick. They are, they our entire religion should be absolutely ashamed of them. And, and and part of it comes from the fact that there that, that, that for for generations of American heathenry, there has been this attitude of lack of reverence toward the gods. And that's changing. And in the last 20 years, that has been changing significantly, partly because of my work, partly because of wor- the work of people like Saren. But it has to change if we want to have something that's going to go into the next generation. You know, if we are not willing to venerate the gods, get down on our fucking knees in sacred space before the gods, as our ancestors did. And yes, there are plenty of references in lore, 
then what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Get the hell out and go join the SCA. Well, I think it really points out to the double standard, because if you look at so many different uh, uh, stories from around the world, the, you know, Zeus does not get this blame for being an evil being, despite all the things that, that Zeus has done in the, in the lore. And, and there's countless examples from around the world. And, and I think you're correct when you say we can't sit in judgment like that because there's just, it's different. It's not this paradigm that you would get from, as you say, the, the Protestant way of thinking about things. Zeus does get shit, too. I've seen a number of, you know, the, 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 I take a deep breath here. Zeus, Zeus gets crap. He gets accused of being a rapist. And I'm like, you are misunderstanding the purpose of these stories. You are misunderstanding the nature of this God. And and it's it's just nonsense. Believe me, within in the Hellenic community, they have their problems too. And part of it is just our current political climate that's absolutely insane. You know, but yeah, Zeus does get a lot of crap. May he mm. ever be venerated and hailed. You know, many of the gods do. Yeah, I find a lot of times people when they're when they're talking about Loki and they're comparing Odin and Loki side by side, and this is something I've I've seen come out of Loki and. Uh, Loki-specific worshippers at times is, well, if you think Loki's horrible, look at all the stuff that Odin gets up to. And as and it's like by Odin, I'm like, yeah, let's let let's discuss that. But let's exactly. look at why. And and how are we interpreting these sacred stories? Are 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 we Bible thumping Baptists that we're going to interpret them literally? You know, there 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 these stories contain mysteries. And if you're not willing to engage with that and understand that there is a mystery here that needs to be explored and meditated upon and understanding it is a grace and we should not be projecting our own nonsense onto the gods, then get the hell out because you're making things worse. That that was perhaps the worst part for me is the whole of the whole article was the attempt to tie modern politics into the theology of it because I think that we start getting into dangerous territory there. At what point in time will we be uh, picking and choosing lines to justify our actions just like we accuse a lot of the Abrahamic faiths of doing? Well, you have a, a contingent of leftists in contemporary paganism that are perfectly happy with trying to establish a political litmus test for veneration. And it's nonsense since everyone has the right to come to the gods. It does not matter what your politics are. You have the right to venerate the gods, period. And what was even more shameful is that Wild Hunt refused to publish the letter written by and signed by a couple, by dozens of Lokians objecting to that letter and clearly stating why. Objecting to the article, rather. Yeah, I see that they they now have an update to the page as of uh, December 2nd, where they at least link to the letter published by the Lokian community. So that is a small thing, but at least it's something. Yeah, it doesn't make up for the fact that clearly Siegfried had an axe to grind here. 
And what really bugged me um, about as much as the points that have already been brought up is that it's mythologizing the president of the United States. It's not just insulting the gods. It's also casting a, a man with <laughs> all the flaws of uh, his character laid bare in all the different ways that that article cared to and using him as a comparison and uh, using using loki not as in a in, in the lore as a a way of teaching about something but using loki as a reference point for all the things that this person despised about the president i take well, deep this, issue with mythologizing our politicians like that absolutely but then this is a man that you know he he, he pushes the fact that he has a phd he has a PhD in double base. Hmm. So he doesn't even, he has neither the theological nor the academic credentials to be at, to be doing anything with our lore. Not that one needs these things to talk about the lore, but if you're going to present an entire public persona based on your, your educational credentials, let's be honest about what they are. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, I mentioned this in the in the comment section of my article on it. Like, it'd be no different than someone trying to cast the brothers Gracchi. I probably butchering that. Sorry, uh, as- Gracchi. <laughs> <laughs> I can see a twitch from here. Um, Rome knew no how di- to deal with its Marxists. Rome knew how to deal with its socialists. It beat one of the brothers Gracchi to death with a chair. Jesus. Yeah, it did. It's a fascinating period of Roman history. Now, I'm still incredibly disgusted by Siegfried's article, and even more so with The Wild Hunt for printing it. But then The Wild Hunt lately has gotten rid of a number of its decent journalists and has been catering to, to, to a certain political persuasion. Yeah, it, I mean, you know, I, I have to admit, Lena, I'm I'm probably far more left than you are, but I I don't know. They're just I hate having I hate having some of this stuff cast about this way and used in this manner. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to have uh, political debates and discussion with people, but I, I I really get uncomfortable when the theology starts getting mixed in with it. But there's been a real push in, in various pagan quarters and poly, even polytheist quarters over the since the election to really silence anyone who is not on the left or to make a litmus test for those who might want to turn themselves heathen. I'm like, I may not like your politics, but you have a right to venerate the gods. Yeah, no, I totally agree yeah. with that. Or I'll see, well this deity supports blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, the gods don't give a shit about our politics. I, I think it's really, unfortunately, a bit too ethically facile to assume that the gods back our politics, whatever those politics may be. Can we not do what is right because we are decent human beings and want to see the world be a decent place? There's a Roman saying that the gods are not there to give us virtue. They will help us develop it. 
but they're not there to provide virtue. That's the role of philosophy. That's, that's for us to hash out. They're not there to provide virtue. We are thinking human beings. We should be able to do that for ourselves. Do you feel like there's any place where the gods do kind of overlap with our politics? I mean, I don't like mixing them up personally, the, the theology and the, and the politics. But like, uh, so when we get into in factors like the, the climate change and, and things that are happening to the planet, do you think that is there any overlap there? I can see that if I were dedicated to Gaia or to Erda or Jorg or or simply as an animist and a polytheist, this would be an important issue to me. Because I think that our polytheism should impact the way we move in the world. Um, I am uncomfortable with saying that any deity will support a particular political position. I think that being active and involved is what is supported. I think that we are expected to be engaged with our communities. No, I think that that is a really fair and balanced way of, of differentiating and, and, and uh, making that distinction. I, I, I would agree with you. I think that it's probably their best interest to have us involved with our communities. But yeah, saying that they endorse any one political figure or party or certain Absolutely. bill or something like that, that gets into really shaky ground. I mean, we shaky. can barely agree on what some of the offerings and sacrifices that some of them like, and you want them to agree on house bill, whatever. And I, that's something that I think would bring, could bring out the darkest and most destructive aspects of our nature. A few, a couple years ago, are you, are you aware of the, uh, Dianic Wiccan controversy that happened at Pantheacon a few years ago? Yes, yes I am. I'm really torn on this because I think it's stupid to exclude someone because of their gender, but I think that they could have articulated a clearly thought out theological reason why they would do this. That's not what happened. I think that everybody needs their own particular space. I think it's good for people to have specific space. I think that there was a way to handle that both internally and externally that was lost. Well, it, it's, it is very difficult because it's the way I look at these sort of things, uh, like when I do a ceremony at a public festival or something like that, I always have to take into consideration that there are going to be people that I disagree with and that don't follow my path exactly. And so it's incumbent on me as a good guest and also simultaneously as a good host, not always to concede to, to people, but to give really good due consideration to their needs and where they're coming from. No tradition is open space. By their very natures, traditions are exclusionary. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we have to be mindful when we're doing public ritual to make it as, you know, there's a way to do public ritual that's welcoming and hospitable. And one has to articulate these things. But what happened in that setting was politics 
got projected onto theology. I'm not Dianic Wiccan. I've never been Dianic Wiccan. I would never be Dianic Wiccan. But I can see a theological position there that was not clearly articulated and that got steamrolled by progressive politics. And it could have just as easily been conservative politics. I mean, politics in general. I think we need to be, and, and look at what happened. I mean, a tradition was mangled. And whether you agree or disagree with that tradition, do you want it to happen to yours? Mm-hmm. Well, and we've got the you know similar things going on this year with uh, Pantheacon and, and Witch Doctor Utu and the that whole situation. So, it, you know, that's quite a mess in its own right. And then we well, get into the discussions about appropriation: is it is, is it isn't? And once again, it seems like a lot of these things. If you're going to have this stuff in a in a public sphere, you've got to be a lot more willing to be open and and have these discussions in an honest way instead of changing it, making it into some sort of, of verbal warfare. And there's too much self-righteousness on every side. Whether or not the gods agree with your politics is beside the point. The point is to worship the gods. Right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, the point of religion is to worship the gods. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why that's difficult for people. And I think that, you know, there are times where the gods may well challenge preconceived notions and you're going to have to wrestle with that preconceived notions of what's right and wrong. And I think you mentioned before I, my connection croaked something to the effect that we go to our philosophers for. Yeah. Uh, gods aren't there to give us virtue. That's for us to develop. And I think one of the ways going back to spiritual discernment that you know that you're actually dealing with a deity is that you are going to be challenged. Your preconceptions are going to be challenged. Your ethics are going to be challenged. Because if our ethics are formed by this modern world, they may not be so healthy. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's understatement of the year, I think. And I think that's a real challenge. I mean, there's a point in, as, as we're working to restore our polytheisms that you realize that the necessary values that we must have as polytheists are not necessarily compatible with the values of our modern world. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point where you need to choose. I think that... Um tying all the threads between the Pantheacon, which Dr. Utu and all the various things together kind of where I'm coming at it from is if we understand that our ethics are one thing and that our spiritual obligations are another and the places where some of those things meet is a little murky and we have to figure that out from our ethics versus our obligations to the gods. Mm-hmm. That's the, I think that's the real sticking point in a lot of these situations is because Utu is not going to just stop his underground railroad cultus because he's serving those spirits in the capacity that he feels he's been called to. He I don't know. Stop the anything because of community pushback. The only thing that he should be worrying about is whether his gods and ancestors are pleased with him. Yep. That's kind of where I was getting to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And I think that, and, and this is also on the other side for the Dianic Wiccans who are excluded from the space for uh, purposes of their ritual. 
they're going to, at the end of the day, no matter what community functions they are and are not allowed at, they're going to have to make peace with their gods. Mm-hmm. Did they do the right thing? And the right thing, you know, if you're coming at it from modern political is not necessarily going to be the same thing for them as what's right for their tradition and their gods. This is and also you have to be okay with that. This is also one of the reasons I'll very rarely do public ritual. I might do an ancestor ritual publicly because everybody has ancestors and we should all be venerating them. But I will rarely do any other type of ritual publicly because to be in proper ritual space, one, you need to be clean of miasma. And two, I mean, it's not open space necessarily, depending on the cultists. I mean, there are rituals that I can't attend. I don't get my panties in a twist about it. I go do something with my gods and ancestors other than that. You know? I think that this might be something that festivals would be well recommended to really think, pray, divine on very deeply before taking on any ritual. Because when you're talking about hosting a public gathering, there's a difference in focus between, say, Ann Arbor Pagan Pride and Convocation, which is more occult-based, and Michigan Pagan Fest, which is much more, in my experience, at least around the fire, quite devotional-based. And really, like, dig into the meat of what you're actually, the, the point of what you're presenting. Because if, if you're doing occult work, that may not be very well inclined toward doing a lot of deity work outside did, of certain contexts. We did the Polytheist Leadership Conference in 2014. We made a conscious decision to have no rituals. We opened it with a prayer and we closed it with a prayer. And that was it. We consciously decided, because we cannot give our gods the best if we're trying to navigate people external to the tradition. That's not to say that it's bad that they're external. I'm not saying that at all. They may have their own traditions to which they are very deeply devoted. But the only thing that one should be worried about in sacred space is engaging properly with those gods. And you can't do that when you're dealing with a mix of people, you, you know, from various traditions with various levels of experience who may or may not have any comprehension about pollution and miasma and how to behave in sacred space. I mean, yeah. I, do n- I do not wish to give offense to my gods and ancestors. And I do not wish to put someone coming in in the position that they might best not even to bother best to keep it keep the ritual to one's tradition out of that space also a hotel is not necessarily the best space when you have a number of different things sharing the same space well not all of these energies not all of the the, the are, are compatible mm-hmm you know, so it's just, it, there are a lot of questions. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I want to, I used to work at a, an interfaith seminary. And I remember one of the things that they always wanted to show the students was how to do interfaith ritual. And I'm not a fan of the interfaith, of interfaith work. And part of it was my experience for several years of teaching there. Um, I remember the first one we did 
was an ancestor, you know, we were honoring the ancestors and I forget what else was involved. And I set up the, 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 the shrine. I set up an altar. And when we pray in our tradition, we face the shrine. We face the altar. We face the images of the gods. I was working with a Catholic priest, a post-Vatican II Catholic priest. <laughs> That's my back, yeah, when I had my back turned, he, thinking that he was being helpful and that I hadn't gotten to it yet, <clears throat> moved the altar so that I had no choice but to face oh, people. No. And we were right about to begin. So we began, and I turned around, and something that small, something that small matters. Both of us were acting with integrity, but it was not compatible. It was completely across purposes. You know, because the focus of, your, of a ritual should not be the people. I actually think that's a pretty good place to call it a night because uh, I don't know what else I can say to that. I agree. That was a, that was well, very good. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, we really time. appreciate it. You got me all, all peppery when you mentioned that article. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am known to do that from time to time. But I appreciate the, the depth that you were willing to go with us, both in terms of your own journey and in terms of, covering all these things. These are important conversations to have, and I'd be very happy to have you on again to have more conversations around our devotions and communities. Very, I would love that. And send me the link when this goes live. I'll put it on my blog, and I'll send it out in my newsletter. All right. Oh. You guys are doing good work. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to make sure uh, that uh, people could uh, get access to your uh, any any space online spaces you'd like them to see, like your blog, uh, books, that kind of thing. Um, my blog is Kraskova dot wordpress dot com, K R A S S K O V A. That's that's pretty much my primary online presence. I have a Twitter account at Galina Kraskova, but that's more my medieval and academic stuff. Uh, Amazon just put my name in. A ton of books will come up. I, can you think of anything else? I think that pretty much covers. Oh, and my email is Kraskova at Gmail if anyone wants to contact me. You know, feel free. I'm a little slow these days because ac academic work, but um, I do eventually get around to answering everything. <laughs> yeah, that was about the short of it. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate my it. My pleasure. You guys have a great night.